0: from Kirkco Media. So
1: what you gonna do about
0: it? If your car gets hit by a guy in a pickup truck and I try to sue the guy in the pickup truck for hitting you, a court won't take my case because I'm not the injured party. The expression there is that I wouldn't have standing in that case. Well, now I trust you've heard about that lawsuit that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed a few weeks back. It was a Hail Mary pass to try to manipulate the election back in Mr. Trump's favor. Texas had filed with the Supreme Court and sued Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Michigan and Georgia, alleging that those states didn't do enough to ensure a free and fair election and protect against fraud. And wait for it. Texas wanted the Supreme Court to block all four swing states from casting their electoral college votes, essentially suppressing 18 million voters. But now that you know our pickup truck example, do you think Texas had standing in that case? Well, here's the bad news. More than 100 House Republicans came out publicly in support of Ken Paxton's lawsuit anyway, continuing to fall in line behind that petulant child who can't seem to graciously admit that he lost the election. But here's the good news. Even this highly conservative Supreme Court, with all those Trump-appointed judges, did the right thing. They quickly threw out Ken Paxton's case, proving that the system still works. Oh, by the way, for the last five years, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has been fighting a whole series of federal securities indictments and fraud charges. Gee, do you think it possible that he was playing to the audience of one who can pardon him? your tax dollars at work. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Switching things up a bit. First, meet our very special guest, Dean Irwin Chemerinsky. He is considered the penultimate authority on law and the Constitution. You may remember him all the way back when he was the voice of legal reason during the OJ trials, for those of you who were alive back then. Irwin started with his law degree from Harvard, He held numerous prestigious positions, culminating as dean of Berkeley's Law School. And he's probably the most recognizable expert in constitutional law, federal practice, civil rights, and civil liberties. He's authored 11 books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court and We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. Oh, and he's authored over 200 law review articles in his spare time. He's been quoted and published absolutely everywhere, everywhere that matters. Dean Chemerinsky, it's an honor to have you join us here again on Meet Me in the Middle. Hi, Dean.
2: It's my honor, and thank you for that very sweet and generous introduction.
0: And of course, my learned co host, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who represented U.S. interests to high level government officials in Washington, Europe, Russia, and then some. She's a member of the Supreme Court bar, and she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. And we're here once again, and we're honored to have her, well, sort of in the studio. Hey, Jane, how you doing?
3: Hi, Bill. It's always good to be here.
0: Now, our beloved Constitution has been stretched and prodded and tested, and frankly, it's in a fight for its life lately. Ed Larson, our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, beloved Pepperdine professor, and best-selling author, is a prolific contributor to the who's who of newspapers. And so, Ed, you penned a piece in USA Today entitled, Trump Isn't the First President to Abuse the Constitution, but he's gone so far we need a reckoning. You opened the piece saying the Constitution's carefully designed structure of checks and balances, electoral responsibility and legal accountability has failed in significant ways during the Donald Trump presidency. Tell us a bit about that piece and why do you feel like our Constitution has failed?
1: Our Constitution was based on the idea of checks and balances. That was the whole idea of how Madison and others thought our Constitution would preserve Republican rule. And underlying the Constitution, the core principle is that Congress legislates and the president executes. And at the core of one thing that Trump did was use emergency declarations and executive orders to grasp what had been traditionally legislative powers. So at the very minimum, I think new laws should bar emergency declarations from lasting more than a fixed number of days without congressional approval and authorize Congress to challenge such declarations or executive orders in court. Also, no president should have the power to reprogram funds where Congress has already considered the issue and rejected that funding, as Trump did by using Defense Department authorizations to partly build his border wall. And no president should be able to evade Senate confirmation processes, which is a core that the founders thought was essential. The Senate would have to confirm cabinet appointments, other high presidential appointments. You shouldn't be able to avoid it by naming perpetual acting appointees, as Trump has done. Judicial enforcement process, you should give teeth to things like the emoluments clauses, congressional oversight powers, and the Hatch Act. Those are just core in what the founders were thinking, and Trump has just run roughshod over them.
0: What did the framers believe could happen to our government when it becomes this partisan, this divided, where votes are on party lines and basically the whole system grinds to a screeching halt, not necessarily because of a governance issue, but because of a political issue?
1: None of the founders envisioned a partisan federal government. They just didn't have the ideas of parties. And particularly the Senate, they gave a lot of these checks and balances, such as the trying an impeachment case or confirming ambassadors and high government officials. They gave it to the Senate, which they thought was particularly immune to partisan politics because they didn't think it'd be elected. They thought the senators would be appointed by the states and therefore represent the states. And so there would be a body that wasn't partisan by its very nature that state interest could be applied there. Now, I'm all for the direct election of senators, don't get me wrong, but it does change the whole notion of the sort of independent review and nonpartisan review that was in the founders' minds. And those founders were very concerned. You can just read Benjamin Franklin day after day at the Constitutional Convention saying this thing could easily, easily turn into a tyranny. The presidency is a fetus of monarchy, he said. We have to be very careful, and they believe so deeply in the need for Republican virtue. Indeed, the only reason Ben Franklin signed the Constitution was that he thought Washington would exhibit Republican virtue, and therefore, as he said, this thing is going to be administered well for a while, but in the end, he prophesied that it would lead to tyranny.
0: Okay, so Erwin, I got to bring you in here because maybe we want to go right down to the foundation for a minute. Can you summarize, especially for me, what the Supreme Court's role is when it comes to the Constitution?
2: I think Marbury versus Madison in 1803 got it exactly right when it said the words in the Constitution are meaningless unless they're enforced. The Constitution exists to limit government, those limits have meaning only if they're enforced and it's the role of the judiciary to interpret and enforce the Constitution. Marbury v. Madison said, quote, it's the province and duty of the Judicial Department to say what the law is. I
3: would also point out that, well, Ed is right. I don't know that there's any law or constitution you could create where if as many people were not going to enforce it, as happened here, that it would work. And what happened here was not just Trump's attempt at violating the constitution. It was a huge number of senators willing to go along with it. So if you have that many people willing to go along with not following
2: the law, I don't know that any constitution would work. Jane, I think your point is so important and it goes with what Ed was saying earlier. One of the things that I've come to realize over the last several years is how much the constitution assumes the good faith of those who are governing us. And if they're not governing in good faith, the Constitution doesn't provide much with regard to mechanisms. And I think some of the examples that i mentions mentioned are worth really focusing on. The Constitution assumes that the president will make appointments to fill vacancies. The Merit System Protection Board exists to enforce many of the most important personnel roles, including for civil service. Do you know how many members are right now on the Merit System Protection Board? Nope. Zero. Because President Trump hasn't appointed anybody. It assumes that for key positions, the president will appoint and then the Senate will decide whether to ratify. But because there have been temporary appointments, that hasn't happened. The Constitution clearly gives the spending power to Congress. Congress refused to appropriate money for the border wall. The government shut down for 35 days, the longest in history. The president capitulated and then spent the money anyway. That's inconsistent on those basic notions of checks and balances. And I hope for those who are listening that this isn't partisan. I would expect conservatives would be outraged if a liberal president did this and should be outraged that any president is doing this. Or to go back in 2016, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to be on the Supreme Court. Good faith would be the Senate would hold hearings and a vote. But Mitch McConnell said no hearings and no vote. There's nothing that could be done about it but it wasn't complying with the Constitution in good faith.
3: Ed mentioned the problem of a president continually making acting appointments, thereby avoiding Senate confirmation. But we're going to have the other problem facing us as well. The Senate refusing to approve presidential cabinet members when there's no reason not to.
0: Clearly, you guys are demonstrating the fact that we need a Constitution that doesn't assume that everybody is a cooperating partner in the process. Or when, isn't that what you just said, is that we're expecting kind of a certain level of decorum in our government?
2: I don't know if I'd use the word decorum, but I would use the phrase good faith on the part of those who govern us. And if those who are governing us aren't acting in good faith, they're not making the appointments they're supposed to, they're not holding the hearings that they're supposed to, they're not doing the confirmations that they're supposed to, then we don't have adequate mechanisms in the Constitution to deal
1: with that.
0: Now, let's get down to some brass tacks and review some of the areas where our democracy was tested. Of the 52 cases filed by those who would like to reverse our election results, 51 of them were essentially thrown out. The one that the Republicans won was just about observers standing six feet away from vote counters instead of 20. Perhaps the best example of our Democratic, small d, system-working was how the Supreme Court judges did their job and put the Constitution and country first before any party affiliation or supposed loyalty to the guy who appointed them. Erwin, were you at all surprised at how the Supreme Court handled that case? Or for that matter, how any of these 52 cases were dealt with?
2: The courts have functioned exactly as they were supposed to through this election. We owe a huge debt of admiration and gratitude to the judges. Both judges appointed by Democrats and by Republicans, including Donald Trump, all of them have stood up to the pressure and followed the law. And we can look at countries around the world where that didn't happen. And so the guardrail in our constitution that's there by the courts has really functioned. The suit filed by the attorney general of Texas was frivolous. If there were sanctions, I think it would be so frivolous to be sanctionable. Why do I say that? What this lawsuit is saying is four states in the United States should not be able to participate in the electoral college at all, that all of the voters in those four states should be disenfranchised. There is no basis for that in law. There's no precedent for it. Whether you like it or you dislike it, Joe Biden won the popular election by 7 million votes. He's going to win the Electoral College with sufficient margin to be president. I don't see the Supreme Court or any federal judges wanting to undo that Democratic result. They know if they did, it be the end of democracy as we know it. If there was a close case and it came down to one state, like Bush versus Gore did in Florida in 2000, then partisanship might matter. But this isn't a close election in terms of result. And it isn't a close legal question in terms of what's presented to the Supreme Court.
0: All three of you are fans of the law, and I bet you're hobbyists as well. You like looking at rulings and seeing just how many precedents are being set. Can we read into these myriad of recent rulings that the Supreme Court specifically isn't looking to find ways to suppress voters? Much on the other hand, they're trying to actually give voters more of a voice. Is there another message here?
2: I don't accept that message. I think that the Supreme Court had a very disappointing record over the summer in not allowing federal courts to make absentee ballots more accessible. I think one of the worst Supreme Court cases in recent years was Shelby County versus Holder, which struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, which had led to suppression of voters. In this instance, there aren't valid legal arguments for changing the outcome of the election, and the courts aren't going to get involved in that. The courts aren't going to disenfranchise people
0: in this context. I've watched you describe the Purcell principle, Irwin. I wonder if you could bring that into light here for our listener.
2: Sure. It's strange that there is this thing called the Purcell principle because it comes from the Supreme Court case Purcell versus Gonzalez in 2007, which was a court ruling that was not after briefing an oral argument. It was just an order from the court. And what the Supreme Court said is. That generally, federal courts should not change the rules of the election soon before the election. Now, in that case, it was articulated as one of a number of factors in deciding whether a federal court should get involved. But it's been codified in this thing called the Purcell principle that a federal court should not change the rules of the election soon before the election. So, when a number of federal courts tried to extend the time for receipt of absentee ballots, or to lower the requirements for what's needed to submit an absentee ballot, the Supreme Court has stepped in and said, based on Purcell, federal courts can't do that. And what's troubling to me about it is, the right to vote is a fundamental right under the Constitution, and the role of the judiciary is to enforce that fundamental right, and the Purcell principle shouldn't get in the way of the judiciary
0: fulfilling its essential function. Okay, well, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some more constitutional stresses and some Supreme Court cases. We'll be right back.
1: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Media.
0: Let's go back a month or so, with Erwin Chemerinsky. "'Twas the night before Thanksgiving, and all through God's house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Then the blockbuster ruling by the courts did surprise that even with COVID, congregations could rise. On red zones, on orange, on yellow, I'm blathering with a Roman Catholic diocese victory allows religious gathering. I hope they all wear masks. Erwin... Why was that considered such a blockbuster Supreme Court ruling?
2: The poem you just read was brilliant. Could I get a copy of that? (laughs) We're used to the Supreme Court handing down blockbusters as it winds up its term at the end of June. It's quite surprising for one to come down a few minutes before midnight the night before Thanksgiving. Why does this matter so much? In May and in July, there were two Supreme Court cases that involved religions, challenging governor's closure orders. One was out of California, one was in Nevada. Both of those were five for to uphold the governor's closure orders and rule against the religious entities. Well, what changed from July to November 25th? It's not about the factual distinctions among these cases. It's all about Justice Ginsburg who had been in the majority in those two earlier cases being replaced by Justice Barrett who joined the dissenters from those cases to create the new majority.
0: Wow. So there's a real example of how things actually came out the way people projected when the courts changed. I'd like to talk about a couple of other cases that you feel might be ruled on differently because of the makeup of the court now. Let's move over to the Affordable Care Act. Back in 2012, John Roberts ruled that the individual mandate, the fact that you have to purchase insurance or pay a fine, was a tax, which of course paved the way to deploy what's known now as Obamacare. Just a few years ago, Congress eliminated the penalty for people who didn't purchase health insurance, and Texas sued that the move makes the Affordable Care Act, well, unconstitutional. What is the argument that would make it unconstitutional without a mandate?
2: The argument is that the Supreme Court upheld the individual mandate under its taxing power. Congress eliminated the penalty, the tax for not purchasing. That makes the individual mandate unconstitutional. the argument is without the individual mandate, the whole law is unconstitutional, which was the position of Justice Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas Alito in 2012. What makes the whole law
0: unconstitutional without the mandate?
2: Their argument was that the individual mandate was the linchpin to the statute, that Congress would have never adopted the statute without the individual mandate. But I think that's the fatal flaw in the argument now. And it's why I say with some confidence, I think the Supreme Court's gonna reject this constitutional challenge. Whenever a court strikes down a part of a law, the question is, would the legislature have adopted that law without the provision that was declared unconstitutional? In law, that's called the question of severability. And it is a question of legislative intent. The legislative intent couldn't be clear here. Congress repealed one part of a very long bill. In fact, in the same month, December 2017, there was a proposal in Congress to repeal the whole Affordable Care Act. It failed. Probably all remember Senator John McCain near death coming to vote to poll the Affordable Care Act. So it's hard to imagine the court saying the entire law is unconstitutional just because this one part was repealed. Okay, Or wouldn't the law
3: be constitutional in terms of the basis of what we're talking about, Bill, here is that the federal government has to have a basis to act in a particular area. And at this point, wouldn't the Interstate Commerce Clause be an adequate basis to legislate in this area?
2: I think it is generally for the statute. I'm going to put aside whether it was enough for the individual mandate. Think of some of the things that the Affordable Care Act famously does. It says that insurance companies can't deny coverage to people because of pre-existing medical conditions. It says that insurance companies can't charge higher premiums for those with chronic conditions, like, say, diabetes or epilepsy. It says that insurance companies can't put a cap on yearly or lifetime benefits. That's Congress regulating an enormous industry, the health insurance industry. That's regulating interstate commerce. What was an issue in 2012 was whether or not the requirement that individuals purchase insurance fits within the commerce power. Five justices said no to that, four said yes,
0: but that's not the issue before the Supreme Court now. So, Erwin, welcome to our lightning round. This is where you need to rule on some past or future Supreme Court cases. Quick ruling, just off the top. Facebook versus DeGuid, does the First Amendment allow someone to invade my rights? This is the whole anti-robocalling law that it was determined that robocalling is is a kind of freedom of speech, I guess. And now that's being revisited again. How do you feel that's going to go?
2: I think the Supreme Court is going to say Congress can regulate robocalls so long as it does so without regard to the content of the messages on those calls. Last spring, in an opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court said that there's one thing that everyone can agree to in these very deeply divided times
0: along partisan lines, everyone hates robocalls. (laughs) El Paso County, Texas versus Trump. This was always a fun one. Whether an executive branch expenditure of two and a half billion on a border wall violates the Consolidated Appropriations Act and basically goes around the, the Congress's deployment of funds.
2: Congress has the spending power. The idea that the president can spend federal dollars without congressional appropriation is so inconsistent
0: with the basic principle Congress has the power of the purse. Okay, so you're ruling with Texas on that one. Let's go to Trump versus Knight whether the First Amendment deprives a government official of his right to control his own Twitter by blocking third party accounts if he uses that personal account to announce official actions and policies.
2: There are many cases that involved city council members or other government agencies that try to deny press credentials to those who are critical of the government officials. And invariably, what the courts have always said is the government can't deny press access to those who criticize the government. Well, that's exactly what President Trump was doing, cutting off his Twitter feed to those who are critical of him. If his Twitter feed was all about, his opinion, his life, I think it would be different. But he was using his Twitter feed to announce official government policies. And to me, that's the same as a city council saying, we're not going to give press privileges to those who criticize the city council.
0: Okay. Well, I thought this one was ruled on somehow, but it seems to be rearing its head again. Whether the Supreme Court should say, pending appeal, a decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which upheld the dismissal of President Donald Trump's claims that a grand jury subpoena for his financial records was basically issued in bad faith. Trump versus Vance, I believe it's called. Where's that going to go?
2: Just a little bit of background as to why it's back before the Supreme Court. This involves a state grand jury in New York that subpoenaed financial information from President Trump's accountant, Mazars USA. The state grand jury was investigating whether or not Donald Trump violated campaign finance laws in paying over $100,000 to Stormy Daniels is hush money so she wouldn't disclose her sexual relationship with Donald Trump. Did he violate campaign finance laws in not disclosing this and the way in which it was paid? President Trump went to federal court to quash the subpoena. The federal district court refused. The federal court of appeals upheld that. And the Supreme Court on July 8th of this year affirmed seven to two. Chief Justice Roberts wrote to the court and said, The law has the right to every person's evidence. The court said that any person could have a grand jury subpoena quashed on the ground that it's abusive, that it was improperly motivated. And Donald Trump could try to make that argument when the case was sent back to the lower courts. Went back to the Southern District of New York. Trump tried to quash the subpoena on those grounds. The Southern District of New York refused. The Second Circuit affirmed. And so that's why it's back before the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court's going to deny review in this case.
0: Okay. When we come back, Erwin, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the Senate and how it works, Mitch McConnell's position there, and how our new vice president is going to be interacting with the Senate going forward. We'll be back in a second.
3: Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.
0: We're back. Mitch McConnell is majority leader. Well, every time the House sends in a bill, Mitch basically sits on it doesn't bring it to the floor. Technically, what does it mean that the VP presides over the Senate other than having a tiebreaker vote?
2: It means that when the Senate is in session and the vice president is there, the vice president serves as the chair, much like when there's a faculty meeting, I as dean get to chair it. Um, and it means, as you say, in the Senate, if it's a 50-50 vote, the vice president gets to break the tie. But the vice president doesn't get to bring things for a hearing or to a vote? If so, Joe Biden would have commanded a hearing on Merrick Garland's nomination
1: and a vote on it. Similar to that and beyond that, the vice president cannot even speak on matters of substance. When they first formed the Senate, John Adams was the vice president and therefore the president of the Senate. And he had an opinion on everything. And he would talk and he'd even propose legislation And he was so unsufferable, in fact, only his wife could stand him for any length of time, that that's why the Senate adopted a rule that the vice president or the presiding officer could not speak on matters of substance. It was designed to shut up John Adams, and it's still the Senate rule.
0: Tell me a little about how you expect the Senate to be functioning going forward. First, Obviously, there's an election coming up in the beginning of January where there are two Senate seats up for grabs out of Georgia. Ed, which way can that go? Do they both have to go to the Democrats to change the the leaning of the Senate? At what point does our new vice president, Kamala, end up having some effect on Senate rulings?
1: Right now, with the elections that just have happened, in fact, right this very moment, because Senator Kelly's already taken office, there are 48 Democrats and 50 Republicans. For there to be a 50-50 tie and therefore let the vice president decide which party is in control, it would require the Democrats to win both Georgia seats. And if you look at the polls today, it could well be that they split differently. And as a result, it would be 49-51. And unless some senator, like the good senator from Alaska, changes parties, The Republicans would be controlled. That was the situation in 2000. It was so close, it was one seat. And there, Jim Jeffords, the senator from Vermont, left the Republican Party to give temporarily control to the Democrats. But that's how tight the whole thing will be.
0: So, Erwin, let's talk about a couple of other things that are very current in people's minds right now. Where is it written that I, as an outgoing president, cannot pardon myself? my family, my kids, even for charges that have not been brought yet?
2: The Constitution gives the president broad power to issue pardons and reprieves. And it's generally been understood that the president can pardon anyone who's accused or convicted of a federal crime. Now, he can only pardon as to federal crimes, can't issue pardons as to state law crimes, but it also includes those who have not yet been charged or convicted. Gerald Ford was able to pardon Richard Nixon even though Nixon to that point hadn't been charged or convicted. But you ask me a much more specific question. Can the president pardon himself? We don't know the answer because no president has ever tried to do it. President Trump has said I absolutely have that power and there's an argument based on the text of the constitution that he can. I think there's also a strong argument based on the text of the constitution he can't. It speaks of granting pardons. We've always understood that as something that's bestowed on somebody else. The Constitution says that the president is not to get any benefit from serving, other than the salary for office. Being able to pardon himself would be a tremendous benefit from the office. No one is above the law. No one should be a judge in his own case. would help to explain
0: why I don't think the president's
2: able to pardon himself.
0: Interesting. So let's have a little bit of fun for just a minute. I'll start with Ed. You opened the show by talking about some of the fraying threads of the constitution what was the most recent amendment to the constitution
1: well that's sort of a trick question because i know the original first amendment was finally adopted after over 200 years but other than that if you take that one out and it's a rather trivial amendment most of the recent amendments have been petty little items like 18 year old vote Erwin, do you know? The
2: 27th Amendment was the one that limited the ability of representatives and senators to give themselves
0: a pay raise. Yeah, absolutely. Winner. Ding, 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 ding. 27th Amendment in 1992 required that any change in the compensation for members of the U.S. Congress could take effect only after the next election of the House of Representatives. The last amendment that we have had in this Constitution with its frayed threads is almost two decades ago, and it has to do with the pay raise for people in Congress. How embarrassing is that?
1: There just hasn't been much of significance since women getting the right to vote.
0: Which leads us to our last question, Jane, and I'm going to start with you. Go to Erwin and then Ed. What will be the next constitutional amendment, Jane?
2: That was actually my question. What's the status of the Equal Rights Amendment? Three quarters of the states have now ratified it. Some of those states have rescinded their ratification. How is that to be treated? It originally, in its preamble, had a seven-year time period in which it had to be ratified, but Congress then extended that by three years. The language about seven and three years is not in the text of the amendment. Is it binding on Congress? My own view is that it's up to Congress. If Congress wants to pass a joint resolution that it's part of the Constitution, it'll be part of the Constitution. If Congress doesn't, then it won't but there is litigation going on
0: about it now in the
1: federal courts.
0: Okay. Ed, how about you? What do you think is the next constitutional amendment we should see?
1: Bill, I'm a historian. Ask me in 20 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which makes us think that in 20 years, you will be able to look back on the next constitutional amendment. Possibly. Because it's been 20 years.
3: Erwin, what does it mean when the states rescind it? Can they rescind it after they've passed it?
0: It's a great question.
2: Two of the states... Rescinded the 14th Amendment after they had ratified it, but those states were counted towards the three quarters of the states necessary. So we don't have an answer. The Supreme Court, in a case called Coleman versus Miller in 1939, said that it's ultimately up to Congress and the political process to answer that question and decide whether an amendment is improperly ratified. And I think, therefore, if Congress wants to say we have three quarters of the states counting those who rescinded, the 14th Amendment is a precedent. The ERA is part of the Constitution.
0: Erwin Chimorinsky, thanks so much for joining us again. How can people follow you? Hopefully by you having me back on the program. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on social media. I don't have a website. This is why we love you, Erwin.
2: It's, it's wonderful to be on the program and to be with you and Jane and Ed. I hope you'll have me back.
0: Jane Albrecht, Professor Ed Larson, thanks once again for joining. Thanks to our producing director, A.J. Mosley. And if this show sounds even better than usual, it's because we've got a brand new producer-editor, Joey Salvia. Nice to have you here, Joey.
1: The pleasure is all mine, Bill.
0: Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Wait, wait, wait. Joey, wait, wait on the music for just a second. You can see the light in the distance with all this talk of vaccines. We're only months away now from our old social routines. Yet masks... Meet resistance, and we're feeling all boxed in. Stay home orders and insistence, we're crawling out of our skin. It would be a shame if, after all this sacrifice, we get sloppy and careless, ignoring Fauci's advice. Can you imagine, as we're close to the end, if our patience runs out and we infect our best friend, our uncle, our aunt, our grandpa, our dad? It would all be not worth it if we end up so sad life is looking up now we've got a new administration i think we'll make it through somehow thanks to miraculous medical innovation we only have but one more ask don't leave your house without your mask see you next week everyone from kirko media media for your mind